0: Welcome inside the Celtics Lab podcast. We have a lot to talk about today with some special guests, PhD candidate Francis Sutton and Dr. Jeffrey Cohen, both of Ohio State, who wrote an article on how we as sports fans are coping with the loss of sport. But there's been quite a lot of related things going on in the wider world you really need to touch on. And as usual, the Boston Celtics are in the thick of it. I'm Justin Quinn here with co-host Cam Tabatabai. How is everyone doing?
1: All things considered, doing okay.
2: Yeah.
0: yeah, same. Same here. Before we get into that, we have some news that is not related to tumult and chaos. Uh the season, the NBA season now has a target date to reopen on July 31st. Uh we have no idea what format it's going to be in, whether there's going to be a regular season, whether it's going straight to the postseason, all that is going to be determined. The practice facilities for the Celtics are going to reopen for individual workouts on the – well, yesterday, actually. Um, They are cleared for group workouts. Uh, I believe it's been changed to the 6th. Initial reporting was June 8th, but I believe it's been bumped back to the 6th. And the thing that is going to dominate at least a good chunk of our conversation uh, relates to Jalen Brown, Enos Cantor, and other Celtics being very vocal in their support of justice and the – Minnesota incident with George Floyd. Uh, We can speak at length about that briefly, but I don't want that to detract from introducing you guys. We'll have plenty of time to talk about that in a moment. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are speaking with the authors of Why Are Sports Fans So Bereft Without Live Games? Uh, It was an article in the popular anthropology magazine, Sapiens. Francis, Dr. Cohen, could you guys maybe tell us a little bit about Yourself, your sports fandoms, um, and you know how they intersect or don't with your careers as anthropologists. So, had sure.
3: Francis, you start.
2: Okay, sure. <laughs> um, so, as you mentioned, I am a PhD candidate at Ohio State, and I am an anthropologist that focuses on sport and culture in the United States. In particular, I study gendering sport consumption. So, I'm currently looking at for my dissertation, research on the connection between sports and social identity among Arab American women in the United States. And I have been a lifelong sports fan. I grew up in New England and grew up playing sports for my whole life. So I have always had that as part of my own identity. And it wasn't really until I left home for college that I Lived in all of these different areas where I saw that sports was really central to social life in pretty much everywhere that I lived, not just in my very intense New England sport household. And I originally came to graduate school with the intention to study food anthropology. And it was actually in one of my first semesters in grad school in a food anthropology class with Dr. Cohen, that I started doing a little bit of research about the connection between food and identity in the context of sports. So looking specifically Hmm. at athletic diet and then also kind of different regional stadium foods within that (laughs) class. And it kind of blossomed from there into this research area for me where I've become increasingly interested in sports very big role within the context of society
0: very cool dr cohen
3: yeah so uh i uh, am a professor of anthropology at ohio state and uh, i work largely in mexico and largely on migration between mexico and the united states and one of the pieces of the puzzle that connected to my love of sports was the popularity of basketball in small villages throughout the state of Oaxaca, where I work, and that's something that I've always uh, followed and and loved. Um, In my own life, I have been a huge Hoosiers fan, uh, for the the basketball team in particular. Uh, And Teaching at Ohio State, I've learned to become a Buckeye fan, particularly when it comes to college football. And in terms of pro sports, the Pacers will always be
0: uh, my team. Very cool. So we actually have some research uh, overlap. My uh, usual listeners uh, know that I'm an anthropologist. I don't particularly talk about my own research, which is investigating uh, the public construction of need regarding infrastructure problem, uh, projects like railroads. And I actually followed migrants um, on La Bestia or the railroad that is used as a clandestine source of transportation by migrants. So I actually I know a little bit about what you what you do as well um but that's what brought me here to mexico and to be completely honest um one of the best tools that i had as a researcher whenever i was dealing with a migrant who had any kind of a sports jersey on was to be able to talk to them about sports it was something that we could immediately have some kind of an understanding some point <clears throat> reference no matter what else was going on around us at least until recently <laughs> where <laughs> now we don't have any kind of contemporary sort of sports reference more the future in the past so i kind of wanted to talk about um community in sports that community that we would have you know that you can have with a stranger anywhere when you see someone like i was on top of the mountain the mountain the pyramid at teotihuacan and i saw a guy with a ray allen jersey on i immediately got a new friend you know i mean <laughs> yeah <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's such absolutely. a bizarre
3: thing
2: yeah absolutely and i I definitely think that the article that we wrote touches on some of the things that you talked about on this podcast a few episodes ago about the changing of sport consumption and just not really being in touch with these live games that give us some sort of some sort of connection to talk to people about in our daily lives. We usually have so many different sports events per day that we can interact with each other about and those are largely missing right now
0: so what are you guys doing for sports i mean cam what are you what have you been doing to to scratch your sports edge? i know obviously like me you you write you produce content like this but i mean like for your own enjoyment what have you been doing
1: yeah, yeah uh so i'll say i'm probably the most hands-on anthropologist here because i'm a high, high school history teacher um <laughs> so i couldn't join the field but. Uh, I have been kind of enjoying the whole nostalgia trip that we're enjoying with um, bringing back old games and bringing back old conversations and arguments and kind of like getting certainly the last dance was as close to live sports, uh, uh, live American sports, I should say, as we've had in a while. I have watched the Bundesliga, the German soccer a little bit. Um, And I will say that it's pennies on the dollar, but the production there is interesting. Um, The crowd noise is being piped in and it's mm-hmm. very well orchestrated. Whoever has the soundboard in front of them is really good at getting the oohs and ahs in at the right time. But <laughs> if you think about it for too long, then it all falls apart. I mean, what are the, I don't know what trophy you win when you win the Bundesliga, but they're going to fake the noise. Or are they going to, I mean, I don't know what that. going like. uh, I'm slightly uh, younger than the folks on this call. So not to be ageist, but I've been playing um, <laughs> yeah. NBA 2K, some video games. So that, uh, If I have a competitive itch to scratch, I have that as an outlet. Um, But it's still, it's not the same. uh, And I try to forget that as often as I can. In Mm -hmm.
2: In my household, we are a house divided because I live with two roommates. And I am a New England sports fan. Then one of my roommates is a... All Ohio sports teams, specifically the Cleveland Browns, is his football team sports fan. And then my other roommate is a Steelers fan and kind of a Pennsylvania sports fan. So, in terms of doing any of investing in any of these rebroadcasts, we have not, we, there's nothing that we would have a common ground to, to watch. Uh, we have been interested in watching The Last Dance. And some of these 30 for 30, but in terms of the re-airing of old games, there's to kind of land on that where we would agree. So, um, it, but we all have a mutual disinterest in watching the live video game playing by <laughs> by athletes and the live um, horse tournaments, etc. So there's a mutual disinterest in <laughs> engaging with that content. <laughs>
3: Jeff? Uh, yeah, so um, I have been running 5Ks with my kids, particularly ish. my daughter. Yeah, we we get online, we find ones that we like. We did one that was called the Toilet Paper Run, we, you know, <laughs> those, those sorts of things. Uh, so that's been fun. Um, one of the things that Frances and I actually talked about while we were beginning to work on that paper, and as she's been working on her materials is that I tend to watch the 1976 NCAA championship game uh, regularly. And really? <laughs> yeah. I just, no, I, that, I, that, that year, that was an incredible year. I, I was not at, I'm not that old. I wasn't at the university then, uh, not at Indiana then. But uh, that, that squad was incredible. And that's, that, that squad's legacy, I think, hangs over Indiana basketball to this day. And so that's, I don't watch a lot of repeats, but that's a game that I can watch regularly.
0: I watched the UConn Clemson basketball game, uh, I believe it was from 1989, where. Uh, a member of The Last Dance, Scott Burrell, threw a cross-court pass uh, to Tate George to sink a basically impossible under-one-second shot to win the game. The 13-year-old Justin saw in a department store where the entire department store was in the <laughs> television yeah. section. And that that convinced me to uh, become a sports fan basically i just had to understand what the heck all that was about <laughs> so i understand um which brings me to the one of the central focuses of your article now i have talked in previous um podcasts about the idea of imagined communities by this guy, Benedict Anderson, who basically just talks about how, like we are doing now, a lot of modern day community, unlike historic community that was based on where you were born and your family and their their extended family and the people in your immediate vicinities. Now we are way more disembedded. We're around the world. I'm in Mexico. You guys are in various locations in the United States and... Regularly, we build community. Like I write for a UK-based website, and I have regular weekly conversations with people, long-term friendships with people who I've never met in person because mm-hmm. we consume this media that is a sport that builds our imagined community that, that Anderson talks about. So through this consumption of media, we we have this connection, and you know when there isn't something to write about, to podcast about, to whatever about. Eventually, you have to start getting creative to hold that community together, and we're already seeing that, but I mean, there's other aspects of it too, and you talk about it with this like, concept of communitas. Could one of you maybe explain what that is for our listeners? Sure. So,
2: we were building on, in anthropology, Victor Turner, who's done a lot of work on ritual, he talks about that in the context of ritual, They people that are engaging in ritual time... Kind of come together within the context of the ritual to create communitas. And this is a concept that's really similar to community, but in Turner's definition he really considered communitas to be this specific type of community that people establish in a ritual context where they come together as equals in the context of that ritual. Um, The hierarchies that you typically see within culture are sort of disbanded in the context of people participating in the ritual and for sports fans i do think the idea of sport as kind of this great equalizer might not be entirely accurate of course but <laughs> <laughs> right but we do see that in the fan context sport really does become this space where different people come together in this common in this common celebration of either a team or an athlete Um, and where those differences don't become as, uh, or the differences between them are a little bit less um, obvious or blatant in in the context of cheering for a
0: specific
2: sport. Uh, So that's where we kind of build on Turner's idea of communitas when we're looking specifically at fandom.
0: I really enjoyed it in in the article. Um, It really does speak to this idea of social connections, but there's also other ways that we use our sports fandom uh one of which i think is particularly relevant right now in terms of the concept of escape escape from politics escape from bad things occurring in our lives and you know it's not there right now to help us escape for example from a pandemic quite the opposite mm. actually and There is even a case to be made that trying to shut out the political is part of the fuel that has been driving some of the civil unrest that we're going to be speaking about a bit more later. Um, But there's another thing that you talk about, too, that I thought was very interesting. And this is this concept of eustress. What is that? So
2: eustress is the pleasant stress. That sports fans have in the context of watching sports, uh, that's sort of built on the the live nature of sports and the uncertainty. And in studies of sports fan f- fandom, sorry, they mm. have found that people really really enjoy this eustress, this sort of this kind of like common stress with the athletes, where they don't know what's going to happen and they're stressed out about the you know. The unknown win or loss of a particular game.
0: You can't really have that right now.
3: (laughs) No,
2: no, and that's in. And when you watch the re-airings, even if you're watching out of this kind of appreciation or remembering fondly a really great game or great moment in sport history, you still don't really get to experience that that eustress because the the outcome is very much known for a lot of these games.
0: Back to the ritual thing, I want to know, first of all, do we have any rituals I, I am uh unfortunately unfortunately maybe a better word is more obviously demonstrating one of mine i'm wearing my yukon jersey right now that i always wear whenever they play a game even if i'm not watching it i wear it. even if i can't watch it i make sure that i have some kind of yukon apparel on somewhere it's completely illogical i'm very well aware it's not going to change anything <laughs> but i do it anyway <laughs> just <in case. laughs> uh, it about you guys
3: yeah, I, I do that all the time. Um, you know, the Indiana and OSU are in the same conference, the Big Ten, and I typically go to the OSU Indiana games. And regardless, regardless of the quality of either team, I'm just head to toe ready for, for the Hoosiers. Um, so, and of course, there's a direct connection to the sweatshirt and the hat and the outcome of the game. Oh, <laughs> you, that's a scientific fact. <laughs> but we do that. I mean, we have so much ritual in the way that uh, in the way that we enjoy our games. And, you know, Francis can talk about this uh, in such great detail. But, you know, uh, OSU is uh, OSU football is steeped in it from, you know, the, the band doing script Ohio to the cheers to, you know, just every part of the day.
2: Yeah, I used to be a lot more superstitious as a sports fan than I would say I currently am. I've I've let go of some of my superstitions, some of my um, rituals, but I definitely have more than one lucky article of clothing that I wear when the Patriots play and have a few different one area that's really... Rife for ritual is kind of these ritualistic foods that people eat when it comes to certain sports, and I have definitely different snacks or foods that I like to eat if I'm either watching something live in a stadium or having a gathering at my home uh, when those used to happen. So <laughs> I have I have various rituals depending on the sport, but I've definitely I think I used to have many more than I do now.
1: Okay. Yeah. yeah, I guess I would add um, two d- or two and a half perspectives. I think one, um, so I lived abroad in Australia for a little bit and not knowing much about Australian rules football or any other culture, I kind of picked a team, the Richmond Tigers, and went with it. And so having the experience of no um, cultural baggage, there's still so much fun in diving into the pageantry and the traditions and the yelling and all that. So I think just... At face value, sports are fun. Um, But then on the opposite end of the spectrum, so I live here, Somerville, just north of Boston, where my mom grew up, just by chance, um, because it's a heavily gentrified area. So what once was a community is now just young people. But uh, I play recreational softball at the field where in junior uh, or in middle school and high school, she played softball. And so there, this, it became my home field, even though I didn't grow up there. I'd never seen it before until I was in my 20s. But there's still this kind of connection. And so I think there's also this angle where um, you grow up watching sports with your parents or an older brother or something like that. And you build this really familial community around sports. Um, I don't come from a huge sports family, despite what I just laid out. But um, hmm. I know that that is part of uh, the fabric for a lot of people too. And I would offer that. I'm going to do something that is really pseudosciencey. And I'm going to quote something that I don't, I can't cite, but I remember reading once that for journalists and former players, people who really understand the minutia of a sport, uh, when you do brain scans of people watching that sport, it's about 25% of the brain activity that you would see if you were playing the sport itself. So there is this also vicariousness um, where maybe it's pennies on the dollar of, hey, I'm not actually out there playing soccer, but I'm in a comfy chair and half and a quarter of my brain is playing soccer. Uh, so I think about that when I digest what it means to be a fan is there's all this community and, and things that are so much bigger than you. But at the same time, it's a little bit just simulating playing the game yourself, um, which I think is fascinating.
0: I mean, I absolutely when when you need to stop at the end of a game, I I'm in position. <laughs> I'm like yeah. leaning forward and my, my right. hips are wide. <laughs> I'm defending. <laughs> I'm not, but obviously. Right. Well, well that, I think
3: that's the uh, connection to the stress is you know that yeah. sense of of you're not just watching; you are in the sport, and the the positives coming out of that for you. Uh, it's not reg- it's not a a stress that's going to negatively affect your system. It's a stress that's actually advantageous, right? It's it's engaging you in the in the production of the moment.
2: And one of the questions that I talk about in my research with female sports fans that maybe people aren't conscientious that they kind of feel like they're in the game, but often when I ask about how people are engaging when they're watching sports, and I say, do you cheer? Like, do you yell at the TV when you are watching sports? And the majority of them say, yes, you know, even though no one can hear you, you're kind of coaching your team, or you're coaching your coach to do certain things. So we tend to be aware, or kind of paying close attention to what we hope will transpire on the screen which gives some kind of validity to that idea that we feel like we are actually there playing
0: what are we doing you know without this community? how are we coping for example as anthropologists now i'm not a practicing anthropologist in the sense that i'm i'm in the academy but i am trying to for example uh, during during the onset of the pandemic, I used some of my public health knowledge that I picked up as an anthropologist in training to help direct people to good information, mm-hmm. uh, to use the terms that the CDC was recommending we use. Um, to describe what was going on um, and to try to bend my coverage of what was happening in the sport to encourage people to take it seriously, to take care of themselves and to look out for each other. Um, I'm wondering like, what have you guys been doing uh, on your own in your own fields to kind of, you know, mitigate the lack of sport, the lack of community um, and whatever, whatever you can do as an individual with your own backgrounds? So
2: I have been, I think among other researchers, uh, of, especially of sport, taking this time to pay really close attention to everything that is still sport adjacent. And um, surprisingly, there's a lot. So in the networks that I'm a part of that are academic and otherwise, people have noticed that the sports page of the local newspaper is still fields every day or every week, depending on when it comes out, and also paying close attention to what news is being shared in those pages, as well as how are athletes using their platform to direct attention to COVID-19, et cetera. So there's been a lot to pay attention to in terms of the response, as well as paying taking this time to pay especially close attention to how large a role sport really does play that we get to notice once it's gone and especially paying attention to things like the economic impact that this is having not just at the professional level but also at the level of local youth sport. So it's been a very interesting time to just pay close attention to the various ways that sport intersects with our lives.
3: Yeah, and, and I would only add that that in a, in an amazing way, we're seeing how deep those relationships are, right, in terms of the way that the closure of sports has sort of permeated so many different levels of society through the folks that are associated with working around a stadium and managing um, concessions to – Even a place like a university where the closure of certain sports and questions about what the fall is going to look like are going to have really important impacts on budgets and outcomes.
1: Yeah, I guess um, one of the things that was interesting about being an online teacher this spring was that my students still had sports practice. And so they would do stretches or workouts via Zoom at home if they could safely um and so i mean i think for a lot of us as much as we are sports fans i mean sports is also the way that we exercise and i think that Mm -hmm. is something that uh no one's going to be looking good this summer because uh, (laughs) there's just no way to keep up the same regimen um but more to the point yeah this quote-unquote imagined community that uh we have built for ourselves justin you and i in particular entrenched in all the fine folks on twitter with um that follow the celtics i mean it's it's still there, and, and in some ways, it's more powerful, I think, uh, because it hasn't fallen by the wayside as soon as the game stopped. Um, so, again, I mean, I am lucky that I have, you know, friends in the neighborhood I can go for walks with, and I have family nearby that I can see in the backyard. So, I mean, I have aspects of community uh, in 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 a way that I can be grateful for, because I know other people don't necessarily have that in this moment, but. That big, massive, hey, I'm on the T, and half the people here are going to a Red Sox game and you can talk about the bullpen to anyone in the train. I mean, that just doesn't exist. and mm-hmm. I mean, Frankly, that might not exist for a few years. Um, so that is disappointing. I think folks outside of Boston may hate to hear it, but we do love our sports. And uh, mm-hmm. it's one of the last parts of kind of like the social fabric that, I mean, there's so many third rails these days for better or for worse that sports was one of the few unifying things that, again, if you were on the tee, you could <laughs> shoot the breeze with people. I don't know if people still do that, but um, now I, I I don't think that that exists in quite the same way, unless you want to talk about the horse tournament with someone <laughs> six feet away on the train through masks.
0: So you, you brought up... Um an interesting point that you've actually written about and really we should give you a little bit of uh, space to to speak about that's relevant to, you know, not having an opportunity for maybe several years. Um, Could you maybe talk a little bit about some of the stuff that you've written regarding the uh, short and middle term future of, of sport?
1: Uh, Sure. I mean, it's such an adaptive thing and I don't want to take away from the power and, perhaps the importance of what's happening in the U.S. right now, and really around the world, Um, with with trying to be politically agnostic, I think people on the streets are fighting for the soul of the country, but sacrificing parts of the body. And that is to say, COVID is going to get worse in this country. I just, I can't, I'm not a health expert. I can't qualify that, but I can't imagine that the vast number of gatherings, apropos of any smoke or tear gas or anything like that, that is Um, being put in people's lungs I mean it's just we have had a moment of pause where we have put aside social distancing I mean I went uh, to a march in Boston and people kept their distance but it is not the same as staying at home and so you know whatever the MLB thinks they're trying to put together and whatever the NBA thinks could happen at Disney World and this that and the other I think as long as there is this much social unrest and I am not condemning it Uh, I think that the COVID situation in this country is going to take another turn pretty damn soon. So Mm -hmm. uh, it's great that the MLB is having a pissing contest in the open and it's (laughs) hilariously dysfunctional. But I think it's all for naught because I think um, we're going to 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 need to revisit where we're at with COVID pretty shortly.
0: I agree. I think that there, I think we may see the NBA manage to pull off a close for this season. I don't know if based on what you're saying, I I tend to agree that they're, you know, again, not as an expert, but being able to hear and see what the experts are saying could happen. Um, I think you may be right. Um, I'm wondering what you guys think about the safety. Uh, resuming for example the NBA season or any of these seasons I mean what what, just based on again I know you're also not experts in this field but you are at least in conversation with them as academics and wondering what your thoughts are on, on you know resuming the NBA and other sports
2: I think that one of the reasons that we've seen sports leagues have the ability to reopen abroad uh, tends to be because the countries where those sports leagues are reopening so in Germany, and then in South Korea and Taiwan, we've seen soccer and baseball resume. And that's in part because those countries had extremely aggressive reactions to taking care of the COVID-19 pandemic, and that it has been dealt with so broadly in the countries as a whole. We have not had the opportunity to do that in the United States. So even though I think the safety is in question. There's also the question of ethics, because we are going to do aggressive testing on athletes with enough regularity when we can't necessarily do that elsewhere is very dodgy. But I'm not really sure that sports as we want to see them, including fans in the stands, etc. I don't know when the next time that will be safe in terms of the foreseeable future.
3: Yeah, um, I I completely agree. It's so hard to know what's going to happen. And uh, very often it seems at the moment people are putting uh, economic uh, well-being and outcomes in front of guarding personal health. And that's one of the problematics here that needs to be better addressed and uh, better managed in terms of what sports will look like. We can't simply just say, okay, the fall we're going to open stadiums. Um, But, um, you know, we have to be able to do it in a way that makes sense. And uh, at this point, at least for most of us, the challenges around understanding what COVID even means at a local level are almost impossible to manage because we don't have the kind of testing that would allow us to make. smart, intelligent uh, decisions.
0: Yeah, I I think that the framing of this is, well, what if we have to stop? And that's something that needs to be considered. You know, it is a business venture after all, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't seem that they are really even discussing the also existing Mm -hmm. and not not implausible situation of what if someone dies? Mm Mm-hmm. What is that going to do for the league's reputation or whatever league this happens to someone in first, what is it going to do to what any league's reputation that does something like that? And what is it going to do to the dynamics of that league in itself? I mean, there has been very little discussion about if someone does have a family member or a player for this, this situation unfolding, um, becoming very sick or dying, Are the other players going to be so keen to go out and play and risk their families and their lives and their future? It's could, it could spark some very serious repercussions that are not really being discussed enough. I think, I think that's a pretty strong undercurrent that I'm seeing, at least in our Celtics community. Um, I've seen it raised elsewhere as well, but it's just not, it's not really being very strongly discussed in the national media. It seems to be mostly a local team by team thing. Um, in terms of what we've been doing in the meantime, we've discussed the last dance already, the the, the rebroadcasts and things like that as an anchor to a safer pass, but how are we going to deal with sports as a community? I mean, we saw the WNBA draft and the NFL draft as these virtual virtual drafts, and we may have a virtual combine and or a virtual draft for the NBA as well, Um what did you guys watch any of those? Did you guys have any thoughts on on that process um, or just, you know, the, I, the concept in general?
2: I watched the NFL draft, but I mostly and I didn't watch the entire thing, but I mostly tuned in to see if there would be any technical difficulties. More so okay. than for the actual draft, <laughs> because I was very intrigued to see it go all virtual. And I was going to, I think, be very tickled if there were technical difficulties, although I didn't end up seeing any. But I think there were also some draft king bets on that type of thing. Mm-hmm. But um, so I tuned in for that and I thought that it was I thought it was Fine, it wasn't extremely engaging. And I think most of the engagement was happening online on places like Twitter while that was happening, which generally speaking might be where, if you were watching the NFL draft live, a lot of your fan engagement would also be occurring. So I don't know that for something like a draft, it changes things dramatically. But if that is what it's going to continue to be, is that we there's not going to be fans in the stands and we're going to be just engaging with each other virtually for other sporting events i think that is going to present more of a challenge
0: yeah i'm not really sure how we're going to deal with these uh empty or very low capacity arenas i mean even if they like when they talk about the nba disney arrangement single site thing Mm -hmm. there there is this idea that they're They're going to maybe be able to have, you know, staff uh, who are working on site be able to attend the games to help fill out the audience a little bit. Um, Maybe uh, families and friends who are staying with with the players as well. Even as as Cam was talking about with the piped-in crowd music, I'm very curious to see how that's going to play out. But I think maybe we should spend some time talking about how the lack of sport has been undertaken by people who are normally playing it what they've been doing in recent days and that being you know we've we've hinted at it several times already the george floyd murder in minnesota um and the subsequent response of nba players uh sports figures in general and boston celtics uh, the boston celtics in particular have been one of the more um player active teams in the protests with, for example, shooting guard Jalen Brown, driving all the way to Atlanta to help lead protests and use his social media platforms as a means of organizing it or Enos Cantor driving from Chicago to Boston, wearing his jersey in, in the street for the protests, which I imagine, I don't know if it was on purpose or not, but I can't imagine you would want to start tear gassing one of the Boston Celtics if you, <laughs> 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 you know, that that may have been I don't know if it was intentional or not, but it was brilliant, even if it wasn't. And Marcus Smart giving a nice long speech about why he decided to participate um, in the protest after, you know, again, this is something that is not being discussed. Um, as much, though so I imagine, is going to start being discussed more after being one of the most high-profile um, people to contract COVID-19. So he may have some degree of immunity, but the rest of them did not. You know, mm-hmm. and it's going to be it's going to be really difficult to watch what ends up happening as a result of people's participation in this because there is going to be a spike, you mm-hmm. know, locally because of right. this. Just some general thoughts on what you guys have been seeing with sports figures in general and NBA players uh, participating.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the, the great things about the NBA in particular is that the players have a long tradition and a proud history of using their voices and their platforms, even if the league has waffled sometimes. Um, there's so much just hollow, platitude kind of corporate out there in the past few days that I think uh, there, there have been organizations and uh, in basketball and in sports and beyond that have put out thoughtful um, statements that have really resonated, but there's a lot of noise. And I think for NBA players to do not only to post online information and resources and solidarity, but to put their bodies out there is really powerful. Um, and I suspect that it will continue for as long as whatever is happening continues. I, I, uh, I even wonder if there is a world where the players association uses its might together, um, to do something with money, to do something with activism, to delay the start of the season until, I mean, a NBA general strike would be unprecedented, but we are in unprecedented times. Um, So for now, I think we need to commend, I mean, well, how old is Jalen Brown, Justin? 23,
0: 23, He's a vice
1: president of the Players Association in case you guys
0: aren't aware of that. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. Right, I think we need to be thankful that there are such upstanders in um, the sports community that know what their platform is worth and how to use it for good. Um, Which is to say that I think if your favorite player isn't being vocal in this moment, Eat, that, that is not a time to condemn them. I think that this is a really complicated mm-hmm. space um, in our country, I think. So uh, I just want to be really proud of the players that are able to use their voice in, in such a profound way. Um, but check back in in a week if I'm as forgiving, because who knows what we be doing next week. Yeah. I,
2: absolutely. I think it's been amazing to see the way that athletes have used their public platform to draw attention to this issue. And in particular with Jalen Brown, he has already come out and been very vocal about COVID-19 and especially looking at this issue of the uneven access to healthcare and having concerns about opening up sports too soon. And in the same way that the shutdown of NBA basketball sent a really important message, I think, to the general public about how seriously to take COVID-19. I think that these players being very vocal and also showing up to these protests in the midst of this very very trying time with the COVID-19 pandemic is also sending a very powerful message about how urgent this particular issue is. With regards to racial justice,
3: yeah, uh, no, I completely agree, and it's it's very. I think it's very powerful to listen to their their voices. They have the microphone, they have the presence, and they have the stature to make a difference. and And it's it it is heartening to watch it happen and to listen. I think, and it's not something that's new. That's the other part. And I think that that's really important. This isn't something that's just started, but this is part of what some of these players have done for for you know throughout their careers and, and that that makes it very, very powerful.
0: Absolutely. I think one of the more interesting things that Jalen Brown in particular has been doing is discussing, you know, what is the long term effects of people getting Covid 19 Mm -hmm. in terms of being an athlete we know it can diminish lung function which is you know kind of important if you're an (laughs) athlete um so i don't know there is there has been this long-standing idea that we should keep sports out of politics and as anthropologists we know that you can't keep politics out of anything (laughs) no matter how hard you try uh you can bracket them for a time, but if you do, you may, and this is my opinion, this is not me speaking as an anthropologist, but you may uh, be making the situation worse by not giving it a public forum to be discussed and acted upon and debated and considered and so forth and so on. And I think that some of what we are seeing in this country right now, and this is, again, me, my opinion, that a lack of dialogue and an over attentiveness to bracketing politics where they are inseparable for some of these people, uh, particularly the people of color in sport, they can't escape it. And we are seeing very viscerally the effects of that, I think right now. And I think it's, it's really a good time for, for, um, us to shut up and listen, not them Mm -hmm. shut up and dribble. (laughs) So. Yeah. uh,
3: Yeah. No, I was just going to say, you know, in, um, Well, disaster research in anthropology, one of the really important points that they make is that the hazard becomes a disaster when resiliency uh, disappears and vulnerability increases. And, And that's, in a sense, I think, part of where we are, where our response to COVID, our response to injustice has been brittle. Uh, and it's dated, and it's, it's not effective, and we're not allowing other voices to be heard. We're not allowing other sorts of ideas to come into play that might help us avoid the disaster, or at least mitigate the disaster to a degree.
0: Before we get out of here, I want to say that there is a current anthropology that pushes back against studying things like sports and I think that is the most unfortunate things because we've talked about issues like labor rights we have talked about discrimination we have talked about hierarchy we have talked about a billion several billion dollar economy when we talk about all the sports combined I mean there are so many things that anthropology can contribute to sport and that sport can contribute to our greater understanding of society so i i just want to say to any anthropologists who are listening to this to seriously consider a more serious engagement with sports in general um and i want to see the floor to to both of you to say whatever you would like about that topic um as well as just um anything else you would like to discuss about your research in sport i
3: would Francis. uh ahead, well i can i can start by just saying what what you're talking about is, I think, part of what Francis has heard from me, probably on a monthly basis. Which do this <laughs> work; it's so important. And anthropology has, as you said, really, in a sense, ignored sport or looked at sport as okay. That's what happens when people are relaxing and enjoying itself, uh, and it could. It couldn't be farther from the truth. It is—it's critical, Uh, and and we don't even have to get into this discussion of billions of dollars that are involved, right? It's the social, cultural engagement that's happening, that's creating uh, groups, that creates communitas, that establishes connections. Uh, It's profound and that we don't spend enough time talking about it is a real problem. That's one of the reasons I'm so happy to be working with Francis on these topics.
2: Yeah, I would like to add for my own research, it's been really exciting to bring an anthropological lens to the world of sports, which as you both mentioned is extremely important as this is a major part of culture. And I also hope to... In my career do a little bit of both which is I also think it's extremely important to make anthropology very accessible and digestible to just the sport audience and so that is long term my goal is to bring anthropology into the public eye as well as bring something as major and as public as sport more into anthropology and our research
0: very cool Well, I really want to thank you guys for coming on and discussing this with us. I know it's very difficult for us to be productive in any arena right now with everything (laughs) that's going on around us. So uh, thank you (laughs) for that. As always, you can find the pod on most podcatcher apps. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, as I always say, please rate us five stars. And if you don't like something, just Let us know. We'll make a change. You can leave a comment on Twitter, in an article, with the hashtag CLPOD on any social media platform. We are always trying to bring you the deepest dives into Celtics coverage. Take care out there, people. It's going to be a rough week.